Well, dear saints, it's a joy to be able to continue in our conference. And um, as as you are aware, we're on the crystallization study of First uh, and Second Samuel. Uh, I'd like to just begin by saying that um, this these books uh, are very important to me because at the time of the life study in December of 1993. The Lord spoke to my wife and, and I in a way that had caused a wonderful change in our direction and in our service. And um, I do feel personally that the Lord is calling to each one of us to have a personal kind of searching, a personal kind of impact, perhaps even a personal um uplifting or redirecting in our experience uh, through these messages uh, that were released in the crystallization study of first and second Samuel. So I treasure the brothers choosing this as the uh, topic for our time together. And I'm so happy that we had a good start this morning. Uh, I'd like to just mention again, that a couple things uh, from this morning that uh, we consider that we don't just listen to the 12 messages that were given in the crystallization study, but these six months are an opportunity for us to know this book as opened by the ministry in life study and crystallization study. And as such, to have the Lord as revealed in this book and his economy as revealed in this book known to us and possessed and laid hold of by us. So our hope and our prayer for the conference this weekend is that this would be a part of our corporate and mutual pursuit of these important messages and um, that we would be able to um, seek and do our best to apply the specific points of application that we're uh, bringing forth. So as as Tim shared with us uh, tonight, we're on the second of the two messages on the content of 2 Samuel chapter 7. And this message is entitled in the crystallization study, The Organic Building Up of the Church. As the body of Christ, through the processes of spiritual metabolism, according to the believer's inner experience of the indwelling Christ. And so you could have this title and not realize that we're talking about 2 Samuel chapter 7. This title reflects numerous books and passages in the Bible that allow us to see the organic building up of the body of Christ. But this message in this crystallization study goes hand in hand with the first message to show how we can enter into the experience of 2 Samuel chapter 7 to help bring the Lord back. So in relation to this, In relation to this, um, I mentioned briefly this morning that as we go through these three messages, I'm inviting you 
and hoping that you could consider how these might parallel the three aspects of the new revival, of the final revival, which we have all studied in the past. We know that these, this final revival will, will have three aspects. It will have our arrival and experience at what we call the high peak of the divine revelation, referring to the fact that our human constitution becomes indwelt and permeated and saturated with the divine element through the presence of the divine person in the center of our being. And through this constitution, we not only have him built into us, but we are built into him. And um, become him in our life, our living, our attributes, our experiences are not only mere, are not merely human, but they're actively and genuinely in their essence, they're also divine. So since this is to happen to us, we're to arrive here. So this morning's message, this morning's message, which I'll mention a little bit more about in way of summary in just in just a moment, shows us that we as men are human seed. We're human seed who, by believing in Christ, are regenerated to become sons of God. We're human seed who become sons of God and eventually, not only the center of our being, but our entire inner being and our experiences reach the high peak of the divine revelation and are divinely human and humanly divine. So in a moment, I'll talk about how we saw that in in this first message this morning. This message tonight, then, is to reflect how do we live? So the second aspect of the final revival is that we will corporately arrive through personal revival. All of us together, as as we pursue together, will arrive at a living in which We are partaking of the divine person and partaking of the divine essence actively in our living. So that it's not just a mingled living, but a mingling living of God and man and man and God together in a wonderful interplay, interactive involvement in the daily activities, involvements, and involvements of our daily, of our daily living. We will see, we will see this tonight. And so the first, the first message we can, we consider to be referable to the preparation of the bride who will be divine and human and will match the divine and human bridegroom. This message tonight adds to that and shows the bridal living of the betrothed counterpart of the Lord. You all know, right, that when we believed, we were betrothed. And our Christian life 
is the life of the enlargement and completion of that betrothal onto our onto our married life. So we'll see this tonight. And then tomorrow, tomorrow, of course, the third, tomorrow morning, the third message will correspond to the third aspect of the new revival, which is shepherding. And that message will be not on 2 Samuel chapter 7, but will be on Abigail as the fighting, warring counterpart of the fighting victorious Christ. And you might ask, well, how does that, what does that have to do with shepherding? Well, we'll see tomorrow, hope you'll be with us tomorrow, that it relates this way because tomorrow's message is intended to shepherd us through and in our daily living into the eternal married life. So why do I make this, draw this parallel? I would like you to be impressed as I'm impressed that we are at the end times that the Lord is extremely desirous to return. And thus his magnificent speaking is showing us the constitution, the living, and the mutual relationship that will allow him to come back for his prepared bride. May the Lord do this in our experience through this weekend. Now, I'd also like to just mention uh, from this morning's message, the relationship that exists between our attitude in our reception of these messages and how much we will experience them. So we mentioned this morning that in the Apostle Paul's experience as reflected in Philippians chapter 3, It was his seeking of the objective truths related to the excellent person of Christ that allowed him, through the excellency of the knowledge of those truths, to enter into the subjective experience of them. And so mainly what we're after this weekend isn't more knowledge about 2 Samuel chapter 7, or about Abigail as a type of the church. But what we're wanting to do is we're wanting to bring us into full bridal participation with the Lord onto his, onto our readiness to welcome him in his coming and to be raptured to the throne as the first fruits and as the bride. So another angle from which you recall our brother presented this is the structure the structure of Paul's epistles, especially in the heart of the divine revelation. That the epistles of Galatians, Philippians, Ephesians, Colossians, all share a, a, a common structure in which at first, There's the objective realization 
of what Christ is and of God's economy in Christ and his intention for us with a view that this would awe us, capture us. That's the first section of those books. The second section of those books is then our experience that follows that revelation. And so when you go to the books of of the heart of the divine revelation, you'll find this, and also in some of Paul's other, other epistles as well. This corresponds to his two prayers in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 1, his prayer there was in verse 17, that we would have a spirit of wisdom and revelation to have the objective truths of what the Lord has revealed to us through his word and through the speaking of the ministry. The apostle prayed for this. This becomes a prerequisite, a basis, and a foundation for Paul to pray in chapter 3 that now we would experience the revealed truths. And so tonight, we're intently and intensely on a matter of experience. This experience can only be ours if what is revealed in the crystallization study of First and Second Samuel is something we want to go for, we want to lay hold of, we want, to, we want to reread First and Second Samuel, if we haven't already. But that's not enough. We want to read and, if possible, listen to the life study of First and Second Samuel. This is marvelous. If possible, then, we will consider topically the crucial revelations that correspond to the crystals and the crystallization study and allow this book to open as a blossoming flower in revelation to us so that we can enter into enter into the experience. So this matter of the organic building up of the church to be the reality of the body of Christ through our transformation as a spiritual metabolism by our being involved intimately with the indwelling Christ is the um, experiential side of the high peak of the divine revelation that we saw this morning brought into our living and and our experience. Now, in this chapter, 2 Samuel chapter 7, which we're on, the key verses are verses 11 through the first part of verse 14. And so I'd like to just read these to you as as background uh, before I mention a little bit more about the message that we gave this morning. Thus declares Jehovah, verse 11, I will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you sleep with your fathers, I will raise up your seed after you, which will come forth from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. It is he who will build a house for my name, and I will establish 
the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. And so these are the verses we're elaborating on. And we have these two key phrases. The first one from this morning was a human seed, the seed of David, becoming the son of God. And the second one is, the second one is, I, Jehovah, will build you a house. Wow. What do these mean? How many Bible readers wondered at this? If they didn't wonder at it, they would have had to have just read over it somehow. Now, saints, it's being opened to us as something in which we can have excellent knowledge. Excellent knowledge of Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, Now, just to mention a little bit about what we saw this morning. The seed of David becoming the son of God. To show how intimate the Lord intends to be with us. How intimate he was. As we saw this morning, based upon two New Testament verses. 1 Peter 1.3 and Philippians 3.10. Our experience with the Lord as a man, as the son of man and us as men, was intimately related from the beginning. So in this morning's session, we had this little heading, resurrection, regeneration, out resurrection. And my saints, how wonderful this is. It shows how how the Lord desires to be so intimately involved with us. When he gave all for us, pouring out his blood and his life on the cross. And while he was while he was dying humanly, inwardly, the spirit of his holiness was rising up, and he was enlivened in spirit as first Peter tells us. And then eventually, eventually, he brought his whole being into resurrection. And to bring his whole being into resurrection, the power of the spirit of his holiness was able to impregnate and bring his human element into the divine causing him to be the son of God in a new sense, fulfilling the word here. I will be your father and you will be my son because now you're my son in a new way. The second, the divine trinity became the son in a new way in his resurrection. And simultaneously with this, he became the life-giving spirit. And he regenerated us at the moment of his at the moment of his resurrection, which was his birth as the firstborn son of God, and our birth as the many sons of God 
in regeneration. This, of course, as we saw this morning, refers to the center of our being, our mingled spirit. But from there, our experience is one that exactly parallels his. According to Romans 1.4, he was designated the son of God in his humanity by the spirit of his holiness in his resurrection. From the time of our regeneration, which occurred in his resurrection, and our spirit was resurrected into the divine sonship and into the divine participation. From that time, the intention was held back by the problems in our being and difficulties that we have, restrained by the fall and the fallen flesh within us and the natural constitution. Bit by bit, the experiences of our life as a believer were intended to bring every aspect, every dimension, every experience of our Christian life from then forward into resurrection with him by our choosing to join ourselves to him in that experience, in that juncture of time. And so the out-resurrection described in Philippians 3.10 is both a future coming event and a present and continuing ongoing process onto that event. There will be the rapture of the overcomers. There will be the rapture of the man-child, Revelation 4.12. The rapture of the first fruits, Revelation 14, as, as, as we know. And we long to be involved in this resurrection. As it says in Luke 21.36, we long to be those who prevail to escape the things which are to come and to stand in rapture and in marital pose, in spousal pose, before the Son of Man. Who gets to have this experience? Paul pointed out that that resurrection is simply the consummation and culmination of a process that begins with our regeneration when our spirit was brought into resurrection. And then it's to continue at our choice, our election, our volition, day by day, through all of our experiences, when by involving him with us, through our loving and affectionate contact with him, a further part, a further increment of our inner being is brought into resurrection out of its former state, out of the old creation. Eventually what happens? Our entire former old being is resurrected into the divine sonship and into the divine being. And now, because our entire being, our entire inner being is is resurrected out of the old creation, the Lord has a way to issue the rapture call, transfigure our bodies, and call us to the throne to initiate the great tribulation and to, and to bring forth the events at the end of the age. 
This is what we're going for, as described this morning. With Romans 1, 3, and 4, and Philippians 3, 11, being the experiential fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. Romans 1, 3, and 4 is the fulfillment in the Lord's experience, where it says, out from the resurrection of the dead, his humanity was designated. Philippians 3.11 is our parallel experience when our, as our inner being is resurrected out of its natural frame into resurrection through our cooperation with him and enjoyment of him day by day, hour by hour, and moment by moment. So this was the view this morning. And this represents the uh, descriptor or the, the phrase, the seed of David becoming the son of God, a human seed becoming the son of God. Now, tonight, <clears throat> we have the phrase, David, I will make you a house. I will make you a house. And so that word make there, respoken in the New Testament context and frame, is I will build you a house. I will build you a house. And that house that he will build is the fulfillment of Matthew 16, 18, and of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through, through 14. So we have this tonight. In the crystallization study message that you saw, message 9, there were three main sections. And we'll review these sections in just a broad brush stroke way and indicate what the burden is tonight. What the burden is tonight. Okay, the first thing is that the Lord needs to build up the body of Christ. Which body of Christ, as you know, in its reality, is the prepared bride. First section. Roman number one in message 19. Then Roman numeral two, or the next section, is, is this going to happen? So experientially, we have to ask ourselves, am I going to be involved in this? Do I excuse myself? Um, decline to be involved in this? Or am I going to be involved in this? This building involves our rendering of some participation, some contribution. So we have to consider, are we willing to contribute? Do we want to contribute? And the final thing is, that the apostle Paul was our example, as it says in 1 Timothy 1.16 in this. He was our example in this. And so he involved himself in the answer to his own prayer in Ephesians 3, 16 through 21. And his determination 
to live out Ephesians 3, 16 through 21 became his attitude, became his definition, became who he was. And as a result, it became what he prayed for, for us. But what we see here in this message is not his prayer. We see his attitude, his resoluteness, his determination to render the needed cooperation to the Lord for there to be the building of the house that would fulfill 2 Samuel chapter 7. Okay, so now let's go to our listing of supplemental points, please. And uh, the first one is that 2 Samuel chapter 7 is a prophecy in typology. Of course, we've mentioned that it's the greatest prophecy in the universe. It's the prophecy that begets the prophecy in Matthew 16, 18. But it's so mysterious because it not only is a prophecy, but it prophesies in a way of not so defined typology that needs to be interpreted. So, so Brother Lee says, don't be daunted by this. Bible students and scholars are daunted by the combination of prophecy and typology. When you put the two together, prophecy is a, ch- a challenge for Bible students. Typology is a, prof- is, a, is a challenge for Bible students. Now here you've got prophecy and typology. And he said, that's exactly what you have in the book of Revelation. And what do most believers do with the book of Revelation? Close it. <laughs> or read through it and... Uh, Wonder, what does this mean? So as illustrated by the book of Revelation, prophecy in typology. This Revelation is a book of signs, is a book of typology. As a book regarding the things which are to come, as it, as it says that it is, it's a book of prophecy. So Revelation is a book of prophecy in typology. So akin to this, Akin to this is 2 Samuel chapter 7, especially verses 12 through 14. So no wonder it can be difficult to understand. But here's the excellency of the knowledge. As we pursue these verses with the ministry, we become the first generation among scores of generations who read these words and had a clue. And we know who's being referred to. And you know what? Who's being referred to? In the Lord's heart and in the Lord's direct word is he's referring to you and he's referring to me. So this is not just uh, a prophecy and typology, not just something that we get to know in uh, Revelation, hopefully in an excellent way, but it is a threshold it is a doorway it's wanting to bring us into the experience of this and the experience of this is what we're on tonight and the burden tonight is that in our participation in our experience we would be changed we would be revolutionized because On the divine side, all the ingredients, 
all the preparations have been laid out and made for us. But the meal, quote unquote, could not be completed because we didn't add the ingredients and allow it to cook. There's something from us that we have, yes, unintentionally withheld. And this is revealed here in 2 Samuel chapter 7 in what I would call the language of divine affection. The language of divine affection is a language, is a language of a poetic language, a language of heartfelt expression spoken obliquely or written obliquely in words so that it's not easily understandable. To understand it, you've got to be personally involved and 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 be the object of the affection and of the writing. Saints, we are the object of this affectionate writing, this poetic utterance of implication, this romantic talk that's here. And when you see, when we see how this romantic talk comes forth, it reveals to us what he's asking for, what he needs, what he wants. In our heart, we give him whatever he wants, we, we, we feel we would. But we failed because we weren't so clear what he, or maybe we weren't so clear what he needed. As the knowledge becomes more excellent of what he wants and who he is, and he draws us to himself, we'll be able to render to him the cooperation he's looking for. Okay, so Roman, uh, the second point is, <clears throat> now I'll try, I'll try to explain what I've just said. I'm sure you may be wondering right now, what is he talking about? What is he talking about with um, poetic language, language of implication, um, romantic talk? <laughs> uh, well, let's see if I can try to explain. Okay, let's see. So David's desire and ours and his need and ours. So what did David desire? David desired to build a house for Jehovah. Let's bring in some of the background verses, okay? Some of the background verses. Okay. Second <clears throat> Samuel 7, 1 and 2. This is about David's desire. It says, and as the king dwelt in his house, and Jehovah, note this, sovereignly Jehovah gave him rest all around from his enemies. So he could start to think about this because he wasn't having to fight. Start to think about this. The king, David, said to Nathan the prophet, see now, 
I dwell in house of cedar. But the ark of God, God himself, dwells in curtains. So you know the story. Nathan said, that's right. And he purposed to take David's word to Jehovah, which he did. And Jehovah, as you know, gave a response back. And that response back was in verse 5, 2 Samuel 7, 5. Thus says Jehovah, is it you who will build a house for me to dwell in? Okay, so we'll stop here. And this is, this is uh, the main purpose of this, of this point, is to indicate that we and the rest of the believers are cut out of the same kind of fallen humanity. We're all cut out of the same lump of cheese. When we come to the Lord and realize what the Lord has done to redeem us, to save us, and we realize, as it says in Song of Songs 1-4, that now everything has changed. And we realize we're going to have a life of exulting and rejoicing in him. Right away, what do we want to do? We're like David. Lord, I'm going to be the best husband for you. I'm going to be the best bicycle repairman for you. I'm going to build a memorial for you. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to. Trace this in your experience. Have you not said, Lord, in response to what you've done for me, I'm going to do something for you. That's what David did. He said, Jehovah, you've given me peace. You've, you've, dist- you, you've subdued the enemies. I live in a house of cedar. Jehovah, thank you. I want to do something to compensate, to recompense. I want to build a house for you. And so, saints, in our daily living, this is the primary characteristic of the positive side of our daily living. Now, we have failures and shortages in our Christian life. I'm not talking about those. But now we're living an upstanding Christian life, a saint in the church. And we're at the workplace or we're serving or we're in the church meetings. And what we're doing there, we're doing there because we intend to be a good believer to make the Lord happy because of what he's done for us. And the Lord will interrupt you and say, thank you. But as in John 15, 4 and 5, what you're doing doesn't count, doesn't mean anything. It's invalidated. You're doing it. What your daily living needs to be is, your daily living needs to be, have Christ, who's come into you at the center of your being, be embraced by you, be enjoyed by you, to pick you up and carry you and be with you in your daily living, 
so that those experiences with that part of your inner being can be brought into resurrection. In other words, you don't have the building element. You have created humanity at the best, more likely flawed humanity through the fall that you're living in. And so it just doesn't count. So when Brother Lee was sharing this point, he said, let us sing him 1024. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. Men and women all need him. To do this, you need him. To do that, you need him. Whatever you do, you need him. And so here's the principle of of this message. We need Christ to be built into us. To be constituted into us by our being drawn to him in due appreciation for what he's done for us, that we embrace him, that we touch him, that we hold him. So, uh, this is um, part of the uh, background. Now, um, Let me say, <clears throat> let, me, let me do an exercise with you. <clears throat> In the verse I just read to you, it says, uh, or, or that I mentioned earlier, says, David, I will make you a house. A wonderful and profound statement. David, I will make you a house in terms of what this means in prophetic typology. What if I were were to propose that, let's consider that there was a question mark at the end. And Jehovah were to say to David, David, I'll make you a house. Or David, I will make you a house. If. You let me. If you let me. So this introduces the thought of this message. That for, for there to be the reality of the body of Christ as the preparation of the bride. For us to arrive at the high peak of the divine revelation, as we saw in the first message. Through our experience of the out resurrection from among the dead. We have to have crystal clear clarity as to what's needed and what we need to render. Because everything, the divine being in his working, is held in suspense, in interruption, in attentive, observing inquiry. Will you let this happen? Will you let this happen? So eventually the governing principle in God's economy and in the divine human relationship is that through the excellency of our knowledge of him, he becomes irresistible. 
I shouldn't whisper. He becomes irresistible. And we're magnetically, gravitationally drawn into involvement with him. This gravitational drawing happens in proportion to our love for him and to the constitution in our being, which is the foundation and basis of that love for him. So it's by our seeking of the excellent revelation in the word and in the ministry, he becomes overwhelmingly precious to us, draws us to himself, and now everything and anything can happen quickly because the relationship is complete, as engaged, and he has full freedom and full release. Okay, let's go on to the next Roman numeral. <clears throat> and this will illustrate this point, which I hope I'm going to be able to make clear. The next point is Jehovah will make you a house. Jehovah will make you a house. Now, I'm going to point out here in just a moment that Jehovah will make you a house can be interpreted in one of two ways. As in fact can be, I will I will raise up a seed out of your body can be interpreted one of two ways in our experience. But what Jehovah was looking for, I'd like to share with you a few other verses in 2 Samuel chapter 7 as a background to show what his intention is and was. This is what he told Nathan to tell David. Surely it relates to verses 12 through 14. In verse 8, Jehovah told David, and now, and now you shall say to my servant David, thus says Jehovah of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you might rule over your people Israel. So I mention this because, saints, as we are in our fellowship tonight, we need to realize that we are today's Davids under his, the Lord's sovereign hand. It was the Lord's sovereignty as he points out here, David, you're king because I brought you out of tending sheep in the pasture. And I, I defeated your enemies and I made you king. Now, I, now I'm opening my heart to you. Then the next verse, verse nine, it says, I have been with you in every place that you have gone. Brotherly urged us, he said, stop here. Pay much attention to this. This is an indicator of what the Lord wants. He wants to have, be present with us in an ongoing, uninterrupted way. So sovereignly, he raised up David and David was successful and became king because Jehovah was with him wherever he went. Now, We are a people from the time of our regeneration with with this very one, Jehovah himself, indwelling us, going with us wherever we go. Now, he was telling David, now, David, 
I, I need to have an ongoing, stable, full contact and relationship with you, as signified by the next verse. Verse 10 says, because I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them there. David, you're migratory. I'm going with you. I don't want that kind of relationship permanent to be the final one. I'm going to make you and my people, those who are planted in the good land of of Emmanuel, God with us, Jehovah himself, in a permanent kind of way. Then he goes on in the next verse and says, David, I will make you a house. So in making him a house and in the subsequent matters that are touched on in verses 12 and 14, the human seed becoming a divine son and uh, uh, and his um, making him this house. Both of them in their significances are a bit held in suspense. So may I look at this with you? Okay, first, Jehovah tells David, David, I will make you a house. Okay. That house he's going to make, what is that? Or who is that? The house that David was going to make, that Jehovah was going to make for David, was firstly David himself. And secondly, it was Jehovah himself becoming David's house. He would make himself David's house. Okay. How did he work this out? He made David his house by in his resurrection, indwelling him and regenerating him. And he came into David and David became his house, his dwelling place. Now he says, now he says, I need to be constituted into your inner being and thus become a house to you for your humanity to dwell in my inconstituted element. And that's what this, this session is about. Here, I'd like to suggest, try to notice with me the language of implication. It didn't take much cooperation on our part to get regenerated. We just had to believe and call, but it was quite simple. He came in and we became Jehovah's house. He made us a house. His, he made us a house. But now from there, for him to constitute himself into our inner being and thus become a house for him, does this happen automatically? Does this require certain conditions? Under what conditions does this happen? It happens when we love him. John 14, 23. He who keeps my words and loves me 
my father and I will come to him and make an abode in him and with him. He loves me and keeps my words. His keeping my words there implies contact with him. Contact with him. So when when Jehovah told David, I will make you a house. This was actually a question. David, will you allow me? By contacting me, having regenerated you in my resurrection, to build myself and my being into you and mingle myself with you. Building myself in to be your divine and human constitution and to be a house to your formerly homeless humanity. So, dear saints, Maybe I could complete this. The seed, David's seed that he would raise up from his body. Who is that? On one hand, that seed is you yourself as a human descendant, as a human being. And as a human being, you as a human being become the son of God in, in, in your regeneration as your spirit is brought into resurrection. So you are the seed. Now in resurrection, he came into you. Now he wants to constitute himself into you as he does that, as he does that, he becomes your seed. Christ becomes your seed as he's constituted into you. But as in the first case, the case related to his house, he would say, I want to be constituted into you as the divine seed, making you divine and human. What does it take to do that? He can't do that. And let's ask ourselves, how much has he done that with us? It depends upon how much we actually, in our experience, care enough about him, are drawn sufficiently by him to contact him. And in that contact, open the floodgates into our inner being so that he can come into us to be that divine seed. So he can come into us to be the house, to be the home, the house for our homeless humanity. So with this as background, we come to point four. The seed and the soil. And so this is the body, the main part of uh, message nine, as you'll recall. And so here we have some of the reference verses that you, that you have there. Uh, uh, the first one is um, Matthew 13, three. It says, behold, the sower went out to sow. So the sower refers to Lord himself in his humanity, passing through death and resurrection to become the life-giving spirit, to as the sower, sow himself as the seed 
into our spirit, thus regenerating us, positioning us to undergo God's building work to fulfill Matthew 16, 18 and 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14. There is, First Peter tells us that this seed sown into us through his speaking, through his word, is an indestructible seed that regenerated us. This seed, nothing can quench it, nothing can stop it, nothing can inhibit it, but it needs certain conditions to be able to grow. And so in the parable of Matthew, parables in Matthew 13, which we just read this verse from, the Lord as a seed is sown into the seed of our heart with our spirit being at the core of our inner being, at the center of our heart. When in Galatians 4, 6, the Father sent sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, is sending him into our hearts, was sending him into our spirit at the core, at the center of our heart. Now, how has the growth of the seed been in and with you and for you? Has it been prevailing? Has it been satisfactory? Has it been flourishing? Well, I'm guessing that maybe it hasn't been fully so. And that's why we've been somewhat stinted in our experience and in our progress. So this section of the outline points out that this divine seed needs a human nutrient, a human cooperation, a human involvement. Now, here, what I'd like to bring in is that, according to John 3.29, the sower who went forth to sow in Matthew 13.3 is the bridegroom who needs to have the bride in John 3.29. So what was sown into your heart was the bridegroom. What kind of response should your heart have to your bridegroom? What kind of response would it reasonably have? It would, it would, it would give itself. It would hurl, cast itself to the bridegroom. Surrender itself to the bridegroom. But our heart, which you know, is composed of our soul with our conscience. Most of the time, our conscience is a bit dulled because it doesn't, it doesn't activate the fact that we are not properly oriented in our heart. Our heart isn't toward the bridegroom. Our heart doesn't, our soul in movement and action and representation as our heart doesn't contact him. And so the seed is held back. The bridegroom is far, far too loving, far, far too noble, far, far too divine to expect, demand, 
or force anything. So he, the bridegroom, waits for us. The seed is waiting to see, can it draw from the soil water, iron, nutrients it needs to for the seed to grow? Can it find them? Okay, so the question is, what is this nutrient? In the principle of this message, in the context of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 14, the nutrient that we give is our Amen, Lord, I love you. It's our turned heart. It's our coming to contact him. And to leave him not bewildered by our sudden departures, our changes of mood, our fluctuating status, our pulling away, our ignoring him, our neglecting him, our being oblivious to him. Oh, saints, what is the onus, O-N-U-S, the onus of our responsibility now as believers, as seeking ones in the Lord's recovery? We need to provide our indwelling bridegroom with a cooperation, our indwelling seed with the nutrients it needs to grow, which is simply, amen, Lord, I love you. Brought into to characterize our married life, our interplay, our dialogue with our spouse, our speaking to our children, our tone with our coworkers. It's all to be, it's all to be the divine seed growing more in those instances through our cooperation. Now, does this sound familiar? Yes. This is Philippians 3.13 from another vantage point. This is cooperating with the Lord to resurrect out of its fallen state more and more of our inner being through every human experience until everything is touched. So how, how could you do this? Well, sometimes we talk about experiencing the Lord while we, while we wash dishes. Of course, we talk about mainly this, maybe with the wives. Well, how about you brothers? Do you wash dishes? I hope you do. Under certain circumstances and mutual understanding. Well, how about taking the time that you wash dishes and not having the fact that you have a mingled spirit and the Lord's there and you can touch the Lord and call on him if you'd like to? Why not take your wash dishwashing interval, maybe it's 15 minutes, and say, Lord, I give you these 15 minutes. I'm going to render to you the nutrients that will allow the seed, you as the seed, as the bridegroom, as a seed to grow, as the bridegroom to embrace. I'm going I'm to touch you during this time. So you may say, oh, brother, are you talking about calling on the name of the Lord? Well, sure, it's wonderful to call on the name of the Lord. But in the ministry, 
And in our experience, calling on the name of the Lord isn't just when, in an instance, we need to be refreshed. We need to have a drink. We need to be delivered from our old man. But calling on the name of the Lord is the purposeful orientation of our heart toward our indwelling bridegroom during a prescribed interval of our living in which we intend to give him all of our cooperation, all of our love, all of our attention during that time. And we find out that our being with him, his being with us, doesn't render us ineffective at whatever we're doing. It renders us a divine and human, makes us a divine and human person as we're involved in that thing that we're doing. So what is the cooperation? What is the nutrient? Oh, wasn't wonderful in this message, Brother James pointed out that when God created man and formed him out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, which became his spirit, and he himself became a living soul, that it wasn't God's life, but elements of God, Something close to God came into his humanity that allowed him now to be ready to cooperate with God at the due time. When we're willing to be drawn, when we're willing to have our heart oriented to him over an interval of time, we are rendering to him the nutrient that makes the divine plant grow. So, uh, this is, of course, as we said, in a relationship frame, a relationship matter, causing 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 14, to be a relationship truth. Now, on your verses listed there, we have, Matthew 5, 8, which says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart here are those who are able to hold their heart in a particular orientation. Where in sentiment and attention, it's not diversely directed, but it's solely directed, purely directed toward the Lord himself. So in doing so, they bring themselves and offer themselves to be face to face with God and they see God. This refers and opens to the next, the next portion, which is unceasing spiritual metabolism. What can restore the years the locust has eaten? What can accelerate our progress toward the end of the age? is for the growth of this plant to go on undeterred because we give him our cooperation and and render our personal attention to him. And as we do so, as we do so, that what he's asking for, which is what he's asking for in in this portion, please render yourself to me. 
so I can give you it, be a seed to you, so I can be a house to you. I can't do that until you come to me and fix yourself and plant yourself in me as I'm going to plant myself in you. Remember the verse earlier on. Jehovah's desire to plant David and his people into a land in which all their needs would be met. Well, this indwelling sower bridegroom is identified as the bridegroom not only in John 3.29, but he's also identified as the bridegroom in Revelation 22.17, where you have our status as the prepared bride there, and he now, the sower, the bridegroom, is the spirit, and this spirit is the one he became in resurrection, who regenerated us, indwells us, is in the center of our being. Now this one, when we contact him as our bridegroom, we fulfill 2 Corinthians 3.18 with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. We receive infusion of his divine element into us. His seed comes into us to become our seed. His, his, he comes into us to become our house. From one stage to another, because he is the indwelling spirit. This metabolism can go on unceasingly. Are you willing to entertain that? That your spiritual metabolism can be just as uninterrupted as is your Material metabolism, which is a picture thereof. But because this is a relationship truth, it depends upon your willingness, your readiness, your responsiveness as the betrothed one. So, referring to this beholding a little bit further, eventually, I'd like to also refer to you, Revelation 22 the second part of verse three and the first part of verse four, it says, and in the new Jerusalem, Revelation 24, three, his slaves will serve him. They will see his face. Of course, those serving ones in verse three and four here, are the bride in verse 17. So eventually, by holding our heart fixed in this kind of position where we're beholding beholding him as we live, as we live, we move ourselves toward our status in Revelation chapter 22 when we're the consummated bride with the consummated bridegroom, the spirit, and we see him face to face continually. Well, I probably have to uh, 
maybe not make application here to the fact that in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, where we have the possibility of holding ourselves in a status of having an unveiled face by having our heart turned to the Lord in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. There are some who are mentioned in verse 13 and 14 who keep their face veiled. And eventually in Exodus chapter, I will refer to it just briefly. In Exodus chapter 34, it tells us that Moses, as a prototype of ours, brought into incessant unbroken fellowship with Jehovah on Mount Horeb for 40 days and 40 nights, shone with God, indicating that an imparting metabolism had occurred and he was filled with the divine element and glory in the Old Testament age. And when Aaron and the people saw that, they scurried away. And it says there that after he spoke to them, he had to put a veil on his face. And Brother Lee tells us in the ministry that this, that these verses in verses 33 and 34 of chapter 34 indicate that Moses realized that his people didn't have a heart to hear what he was telling them about being brought into face-to-face fellowship with God according to his intention. They weren't able to hear it. So as a result, he covered his face. He covered his face. So I'll just leave, leave that there, these verses. We don't want to be persons who leave our face covered, our face veiled, by not rendering the needed cooperation by turning our heart to the Lord to, to contact him so that he can build himself into us and that element can replace our old element with a divine and human metabolism which can be incessant. Now, this is illustrated, we'll go on to point six now. The burden, attitude, and prayer of the apostle. Now, I believe uh, at the top of your sheet, you have uh, uh, Ephesians 3, 16 through 21 uh, listed there. And... This was the the Apostle's prayer for the experience of all of us, the experience of the believers. Brother James, the message told us, we were encouraged to read this. One one point, we were encouraged to read this every day for a month, to pray this prayer every day for a month. Ephesians 3, 16 through 21. Another time we were encouraged to pray this prayer every, every day for three months. What happens when you pray this prayer every day for three months? You get the divine element built into you. And God has made you a house. And and you have become his house. Because in praying this prayer, this prayer is 
the cooperation that's needed. So the prayer was, oh, may they be strengthened. By the drawing divine power, the the drawing, the magnetic field, the drawing power. Out of diverse involvements, into contact with him, indwelling in their inner man. Opening the floodgate, the portal. So that the spirit, the indwelling spirit, the indwelling bridegroom can move out into our inner being, our heart, and make his home there. Our brother said, well, Brother Lee said that Paul was obsessed with this, became overtaken with this, to the point, he said, he was crazy with this. Oh, brothers and sisters, may we be crazy with this. To the point that his burden and his attitude, the definition of his person was, I am a person adfixed, joined to the Lord in my entire being. First Corinthians chapter 6. Joined him in my entire being. Through my intended and rendered cooperation by contacting him in and amid my daily life experience. So you remember remember how Brother James said that one way of understanding this portion of the word Ephesians 6, 17 through 16 through 21, is that this represents the organism of the triune God as the great machine in the universe. And it is deactivated. This machine is deactivated until it's got an operator. Well, tonight, saints, the operator isn't just an operator operating machine. This is a betrothed person responding aptly and properly to the indwelling bridegroom. And then when we have this burden and attitude every day, Every day, every half day, a little bit more, a little bit more, a little bit more. We contact him in and with our daily life experiences. And washing the dishes becomes different. Having an update with your spouse becomes different. Pulling the weeds becomes different. as those things are purposefully and with plan, with plan, brought into the experience of Second Samuel chapter 7, whereby giving him the proper cooperation, he is able to transform us, enter into our heart, our inner being, and by being there, give us a personal, 
involvement with him. That's the bride with the bridegroom and be transformed in our inner being so that our essence and our interiors, our inwards match his. Now, related to this, it was mentioned that this is illustrated our cooperation with the Lord, our decision, our deciding to no longer live apart, no longer be independent, is a function of our will. And so in a real sense, the cooperation that we are to render to him has to do with, or begins with, the precedence of our will over our circumstances, over our convenience, over previous plans, over inconsistencies in our emotion and in in our thoughts. And regardless of what happens, we join ourselves to him. And so, do you remember how Brother James said that in Song of Songs, which is a book on growth in life, becoming a new constitution, resulting in transformation and building, that the most lovely thing about the seeker, the Shulamite, was her will signified by her hair being subdued her her hair being well placed and in order indicating her submission to him as a proper female as a proper woman and her neck which signifies the will in the bible being adorned and beautiful and so i'd just like to add to what brother james shared that if you take a tour through the book of Song of Songs, the beauty of the seeker's will is mentioned in every chapter of the eight chapters. All eight chapters mention this. And so what's the definition of someone who's in the Song of Songs and a proper seeker, a proper Shulamite? She is one who renders to the sower and the seed to the bridegroom, the necessary cooperation, which was a decision in her will that she would be for him, that she'd be given to him. So if I could just read these to you real quick. I think think it's helpful to see that uh, the nutrient, the main nutrient we can supply in response to the language of love, of inquiring, will you take me will you allow me to be with you and be with me is an affirmative response yes i will and as a result our will being the axis for the turn and orientation of our heart to him so that our heart becomes the good soil for the plant to grow so song of songs 110 Your neck is lovely with strings of pearls, which means her neck had been transformed 
by his entering into her heart to transform her will so that he could, she could give herself more to him. Song of Songs 2.17, the second part. Turn, my beloved, and be like a gazelle or a heart on the mountains of Beether. This is a negative example. Here she was away from the Lord. He calls her. She says no. She says no. You turn. You come back to me. I don't want to come back to you. Here the word, the title, the, the word beether is implied here. Separation. So this is the kind of will we tend to have. And that was not so beautiful. In chapter 3, verse 2, it says, I will rise up now. I will rise up now. And go up out of the city and seek him whom my soul loves. So the reference here to seeking him in the city refers to her seeking him in the details and context of her daily life, seeking the one that he loves, that she loves. I will. Uh, Then in chapter four, verse one, your hair is like a flock of goats. They're opposed on Mount Gilead. There, it's lovely to see how Brother Lee refers to the New Zealand um, sheep population as being those that um, are orderly on the hills of New Zealand, indicating that the seeker was one whose hair was well-plated. Verse 4, your neck is like a tower of David built for an armory. So her fighting power, her standing power was in her her neck. In verse 6 of verse 4, she says, for my part, I will go to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. She made a determination. Where's the mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense? That was in the inner chamber of her mingled spirit. Well, let's see. Maybe I need to. Anyway, um, (laughs) I guess guess this could be a message in itself. Uh, Anyway, the rest of the chapters, also each one of them has a reference to the fact that to, to be one who is transformed, who has the divine constituent added to the human, who renders a house, for the indwelling Lord, and the indwelling Lord becomes a house for them. It has to do with our rendering the proper nutrient of our cooperation with the Lord and being willing to contact him in our living. And again, I'd like to say, this is the continuation of the experience of Philippians 3.11. Now, I'll just mention... uh, Verses seven, uh, point seven and eight here quickly to conclude. Do you remember how this morning I mentioned Second Samuel chapter seven is like the mountain in these two books, and around them you have various mountains that seem to be pointing toward and giving context and appreciative context to this great high mountain. Well. Point seven and eight here are to are to indicate that all of the lessons in First and Second Samuel are to urge us to participate with the Lord 
in the fulfillment of 2 Samuel chapter 7. So let me try to make this clear. In Roman numeral 7, it says that there are four emphases in First and Second Samuel in relation to Second Samuel chapter 7. First of all, a lesson in First and Second Samuel is again and again you see God's sovereignty. Saints, God is sovereignly operative in your environment. How? To make you a person in the fulfillment of Second Samuel chapter 7. Secondly, the second emphasis in First and Second Samuel is his economy as illustrated in Second Samuel chapter 7, where he desires to build himself into you and build you into himself. The third emphasis is that man in these books failed to do this. Yes, they were in the Old Testament age. But in what happened, interpreting it and looking back, they responded in a way that was not according to the divine intention as revealed in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And so they failed and they had tragic end. So this is a warning to us. We're here at the end of the age. We need to pay attention to this prophecy and typology and be desperate to give him the needed cooperation to be the operator of the machine in the universe of Ephesians 3, 16 through 21 so that the bride and the bridegroom can match and the rapture can come. Point eight says, the spiritual principles, the life lessons, and the holy warnings in First and Second Samuel. On the negative side, you have Eli and, and Saul. What was Eli? Eli was someone who failed to respond to the sovereignly arranged privilege of his priestly position. This refers directly to us. We could be those who become like Eli, failing to respond to the sovereignly arranged privilege in the divine priesthood and responding to him according to Second Samuel chapter 7. Then you have Saul. What did Saul do? Saul built up a person. His actions indicated that he was interested in being a human king a natural king. He was building up a kingship within the kingdom of God. This training pointed out that when we're not in the principle of 2 Samuel chapter 7, we are Saul. We're building up something for ourselves amid the kingdom of God. So we, we don't want that. Of course, the two positive examples are Samuel and David. Samuel was one who, under God's sovereignty, behaved and carried himself as if he were one who had profited from the speaking in 2 Samuel chapter 7. He was one according to God's economy, wasn't he? He was a Nazarite. 
voluntarily giving himself to the Lord. Not having, having his hair properly there, indicating his submission. This, of course, is what we've talked about tonight. And he had several other capacities. We are to be such persons who can and should change the age by being according to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Did you get this statement? That we could attribute the Lord's first coming to Samuel because of the way he was and what he did. Now, when we're according to 2 Samuel chapter 7, in parallel with Samuel's experience, we can bring the Lord back again for his rapture. And finally, David is simultaneously a happy story because he was a positive figure and a sad one. Because he was only according to God's heart but did not have the divine constitution. He failed tragically, miserably. And this is our destiny also if we don't have God constituted into us. So, in conclusion, we need to render him our cooperation. Responding to his language of romance, will you give yourself to me? And when we do, we give the nutrients to the plant. We pray the prayer in Ephesians 3, 16 through 21. We operate the the machine of the body of Christ in, in the universe which is the bride preparing herself and we're ready for the Lord to rapture us and to come back. Well, thank you, saints. This is uh, some applications for message nine.